Are you blocking your calendar to show how much time are you spending on revenue generating activities? And I think you take it even a step beyond that that says, do I block part of my day just like a CEO would where I don't have any calls and I just think about my business? Like, what am I gonna do to win this $25 million account? Cause I'm not gonna think about that in the 20 minutes between two internal calls. Like I'm not gonna come up with that idea then. I'm gonna come up with that idea after I research the account for like 15 hours and read every 10K and do all those things. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Sarah Levinson. Sarah is the Vice President of Business Development at Prometric. And also joining me today as co-host is Howard Brown, CEO of Revenue.io. And in our conversation today, we're talking about what are the qualities that make a great salesperson? We start by getting into what a great seller is. It's one of those things that's kind of easy to say, but harder to describe. We then dive into why more sales leaders need to provide greater autonomy to their sellers and get back to the idea that was prevalent when I was early in my sales career, which is that sellers are encouraged to think and act as the CEOs of their sales patch, their territory, You know, whether that's a list of accounts or a geography. We also dig into why sellers need to have a better understanding of their own selling process and their own numbers. And we explore why success in sales starts with being a good human being. We get into all of this and much, much more because it's a really fun conversation. But before we get to Sarah, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also leave us a review and give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. I am thrilled to be here and to get both you and Howard in a one-shot deal. Very exciting. Oh, there we go. See, and Howard, obviously, welcome. But you're like you're becoming part of the furniture now. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm I'm that old crusty chair in the corner, right? That that's me, Sarah. It's great to have you. <laughs> Thanks. I'm so excited. I've been a longtime follower of Andy's content. I'm a big fan, so I'm pumped to be here. Well, we're excited to have you here. So, tell us a bit about you and the work you do. Sure. Um, so, I started in enterprise sales. Uh, a decade ago at IBM uh, in Los Angeles. And mm-hmm. I started my career as an SDR, which I feel like was very meaningful for how I approach yeah. sales today. Uh, so I have big love for SDRs, <clears throat> always support them in whatever organization I'm in. And then uh, from there, after I was at IBM a few years, I went into the startup world and started taking on my own territory I worked at LivePerson um, for almost three years. That was a public company. Amazing ride. Mm -hmm. Uh, The stock increased substantially uh, in the time that I was there. (laughs) And that's where where I met Sean Burke, who was my manager. And that uh, changed my sales career forever. And that's who I indirect, I mean, directly report to, but he's a couple levels above me now. He's a chief operating officer, but I'm part of his revenue organization at Prometric. And now I'm in the test, remote testing industry, we're calling it now because everything's happening like we're talking now. Um, But as Howard was saying before, Prometric's business used to be in-center tests. And so now they're Mm -hmm. moving forward to do things like 
remote testing, look at, looking at how we can use AI in assessments. So they wanted uh, some some AI experts and software experts in-house. So um, that's why I'm here. Very interesting. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I first heard of Prometric, I think when Sean went there, but as soon as Sean went there, oh. like uh, like after, like the same day maybe he told me that, that he had gone there um, just having a conversation with my wife, who's an associate dean at NYU School of Medicine. She's talking about how they use Prometric in their work as well. Yeah. So, um, I think what's um, a little different about this role uh, versus the other ones is um, it's kind of like a Navy SEAL team. There's only a few of us um, hunting uh, accounts that are $5 million plus. So mm-hmm. some of them are $40 million, uh, prospects that we can win back. But there's a set list of, you know, 10 to 15 strategic accounts uh, that I'm responsible for trying to win their business. So it's a more focused role than just kind of your typical sales territory that I've been in before. Yeah, well, it certainly presents a, a different set of challenges when you have such a limited universe of potential prospects. Yes, it does. And you have to be much more diligent about how you spend your time, you know, how you do, when you do big thinking about these accounts, um, mm-hmm. you know, staying up to date on their decision process, you know, an enterprise sale is very different to start with, but a large enterprise sale like this, that's, you know, a nine month plus cycle normally, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. it requires a different level of attention, uh, and dedication than some of my other roles, but it's fine. Yeah. It's a great challenge. Oh, Good. Good. So I'd love to ask a question, Sarah. So you came from a tech background, but you're at a testing company with 10 very large accounts. Obviously, you want to deliver value. How is your onboarding and level of knowledge and understanding changed from walking in the door to where you are today? Are you a testing expert? How do you drive value? What kind of conversations are you having? That's such a good question. So um, one of my hesitations before I joined was what you're talking about. So the learning curve that I had no experience in the assessment industry. Um, I hadn't sold in that kind of environment. And in fact, I hadn't traditionally sold in-person services and software services. So that was kind of another jump. Um, So am I an expert? No. Um, And I don't think one can ever become an expert uh, and anything, because as you guys know, I believe in continuous learning. So I'm not an, I'm not an assessment expert, um, but I will say that coming in with a different background, which I think was intentional in Prometric's hiring processes, allows me to look at our competitive landscape in a different way than somebody who's been in the testing industry for 10 years. So um, there are only a few major players in the assessment industry. And so your competitive strategy is different because it's not a nice to have. They have to buy it. So any company that gives an assessment and when you're selling a need to have, the thing that really differentiates you when the products aren't that different is you. You're the difference. Mm -hmm. So I think that aligns really well to the way I sell. I know that Andy has just put out a book about this exact philosophy. Um, But I believe, uh, as Andy does, that people buy from human beings and they back that up with data after they make an emotional decision. So I think that lends itself well in a competitive scenario where you have the ability to be the differentiator versus just 
you know, small product things that aren't aren't big enough to swing a sale yet. I think Prometric's making investments to make that difference, but we're not there yet. And so the people right now are what make is making the difference. I hope that answers your question. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I'm sorry. Howard, did you have a follow-up? No, or? no, go, Andy, go. Okay. Go, Andy. So <laughs> to, to that point, I think a lot of people perceive that that actually it's in the smaller, relatively smaller dollar transactions where the person makes the difference. Mm-hmm. Whereas my experience has been, and you were just talking about yours, Sarah, in, in selling seven, eight, and even nine-figure deals, it was the individual that was the difference. Yeah, I, I was the one that the, the customers were buying from. Yes. I was the personification of, of the company. Um, so talk a little bit more about that. I mean, because it's it's... Let's say it seems counterintuitive to some people, but it's actually said the more complex, the bigger the deal, the more important this this person is. Yeah. And I'm sure you know, Andy, that there's a lot of research that says salespeople don't need to be liked, right? You just need to be respected and whatever. I mean, we could go on a whole debate about that. <laughs> don't, um, don't get me started. Yeah. Right. Don't, don't get us started, please. Yeah. yeah. So I, mean, um, like- I need to like you to buy from you. That's what I believe. However... I do not necessarily prioritize being liked by my clients over other things that are more important that I need to do Mm -hmm. for them. I think that's the difference. And when I say you, I don't necessarily only mean Sarah's likable and we enjoy working with her, which is obviously important. But in in a major enterprise sale that is the dollar amounts that we're talking about, each experience really matters. So like, How quickly you follow up matters. How you build a business case matters. Who you're talking to, like, are you working with the C-level? Are you, are you, um, I don't want to use the word pushy. Are you confident enough to say, I'm only going to work with the C-suite on this deal because of the size, because of the scope, because of the influence on your company? So it's all those factors of how you sell. That's what I mean by you in each step of the mm-hmm. process that make that that differentiation. And candidly, I think I'd be pretty bad at transactional sales, you guys. Um, <laughs> I think I would just like invest too much emotional time and energy uh, into the transactional sale. And um, so, that, so I'm thinking of it as not just they like me and they enjoy working with me, but I create an experience for them as a buyer that is differentiated from what my competitor does. So that's right. what I think behind the behind the you. So you brought something up that was very important that I believe very strongly is that yeah, you know, I look at sales as a selling process or buying journey as a collection of moments, right? And because you have very few opportunities to actually engage with the buyer. So you yes. have to make sure that each one of those engagements, each one of those opportunities you're at your best, right? Mm-hmm. That you're creating an experience for the buyer that's memorable, that's you know valuable, that's helping them make progress in their their buying process. And and I had written about this recently, actually one of our blog posts for for revenue.io is is you know Daniel Kahneman did the study about what he called the peak end rule, right? When people go through an experience, he had research and said when they make their decision about the experience they only take into account really two factors, the peak moment or experience during that process and the last experience. 
And so translated into sales, I've been talking about this for a long time, is you as a seller, you don't know which one of these opportunities you have to engage with the buyer is going to be their peak experience. To the point you brought up, Sarah, that I believe is hugely important is like follow-up, right? If the customer reaches out and even with an opportunity, like a lead, right? If you can be the first one to follow up, be responsive, you know, give them the answers to questions, you may think, well, that's trivial. That was just the first call. That could have been the peak experience. That could have won you the deal. I've experienced that. I've seen that with other 100%. sellers as well. Yeah, totally. And if you're if you're the <clears throat> not only if you're the first one to jump on it, but if you surprise them with how quick your follow up mm-hmm. is, how thorough it is, and they're not used. I mean, and time and time again, I feel really sad saying this, but the truth is there aren't a lot of amazing sales experiences out there for buyers. I mean, that's the truth. Yeah. So right. yeah. when they, when they have one, you know, you have an opportunity that's like, yeah, I, I am, I am making this a different, and part of like, part of it, I feel like Andy, you've talked about this too, but like buying is really hard. It's not mm-hmm. fun. Like it's not fun to have 50 internal meetings and not have Jesse in the boat from operations. And the CMO has a whole different plan that doesn't align with what you're trying to do and like getting everybody together so, and I think I, I shared this with you guys, but it's almost like, and I, Sean taught me this, so I'll give him credit, but it's like, you're the Sherpa that's guiding the buyer through the experience, not I'm pitching you a product. It's like, help them figure out how to buy because it's a not fun experience for them, really hard to navigate, even if they really believe their vision, your vision, and there's one champion that's really behind it, it can be really hard for that person. So you have to get good mm-hmm. at guiding them through that um, maze of a process, depending on the complexity of the organization. I love that. I really do. I think that if we focus on the buyer as the center of the universe, and we attempt to deliver a great buying experience, then We'll focus on delivering value and we'll help them through that very unstructured process that involves many, many stakeholders, many of whom have very different goals and emotional connections to both the product, the relationship, and everything else. I think what you're you're outlining and what Andy mentioned was these moments that we string together. We have to deliver incredible experiences, those buying experiences. We have to focus on delivering value to each and every single stakeholder. And we need to get out of simply thinking about our sales stages and our sales process to thinking about how do I build a connection? How do I deliver value? How do I think about what's important to them and deliver that in a timely fashion so that they know that they can rely on you, that you're their go-to if they have questions, if they have concerns, that trust will then lead into building that championship relationship within the organization so that they can count on you to deal with all the other stakeholders as well. It's so critical. Yep. All right. Well, let's... Great point, Howard. Let's let's jump into this this presentation that Sarah Jude put together because, as Howard said, it was it was a really excellent presentation. So, give us a little bit of the background. You this was one you were doing for Pavilion, 
Yeah, Pavilion. Thanks for reminding me that they changed their name from formerly Revenue Collective. So, <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm an original gangster Revenue Collective member because uh, I've been part of Revenue Collective for a couple of years now. Great organization now called Pavilion. And now instead of only supporting um, folks in revenue roles, they also support lots of other roles inside of organizations and they offer training. It is a private community, so you have to apply to be accepted, but training, courses, you know, upskilling, coaching, all sorts of things that are part of that community. One of those mm -hmm. things is they are now offering sales school. So the folks who are in that class are AEs. So some of them are in their first time AE role. There were SDRs in that class. Um, some folks are in their kind of maybe their first management role or their first senior AE role. But the point is, is about sales skills. So um, there were lots of different sessions. You know, there's one on medic, of course, and the mm, formula for qualifying deals. And um, I would say old school stuff mixed with new school stuff. And uh, the one that I was asked to do was the qualities of great sellers. So um, I was careful to remind the, the students when I presented, like, we're not talking about the qualities of sellers. <laughs> we're talking about the qualities of great sellers. There's a big difference. Um, so that's how I approached the presentation and I had a little fun with it, you know, mixed in videos and things, but kind of operated around some key principles and got some great questions. It, it was a really fun session. Yeah. To do. Thanks for the compliments. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the things that, that early on in the, the presentation that struck me is, is something you talked about, sort of old school, new school is something that for me, I, mean, I don't want to label it old school because I think it's still relevant, but it's something you just don't see as much anymore, which was, you know, it's that great sellers have this perspective that they are the CEO of their territory. Yes. And so when I, when I started in sales about 600 years ago is this is what we were taught. Right. This is this this is one of the attractions of doing it that made me excited. It's like you were taught that you've got this patch. Yes. You've got this patch. This is your business. And yeah, we've got process, we've got structure, we've got things, but you know, we just need you to deliver on this patch. And you know, you may have your own way of doing it. That's fine. <laughs> My manager didn't really care. It's just, yeah, you know, how we can help you. But you're gonna make decisions about you know how to do business in your yeah. your business within a business. And you just rarely hear that said anymore to sellers. And for me, it was just empowering. I, it's what motivated me to want to, you know, do a good job. Well, there's ownership there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, sorry. I, I love that. There's ownership. You're not pointing fingers. You're not blaming anybody else. You are the owner of your relationships, your territory, and you go get them. Well, but also ownership of how you do it. Yes. that No, Andy, that's actually one of the other points I was going to make. So it changes your behavior because you're like, this is my patch and no one else is going to do this for me. No one else is going to close my number. Nobody else is going to have the hard conversations with product that need to be have had to, to close my number. So it's not just no blame and no complaining. It's also, how am I going to approach every day now that I know I'm the CEO of my territory? Um, we were just on an internal call with uh, the select group of people that won President's Club. We call it Excellence Club at, at Prometric. Mm -hmm. So I'm lucky to, I was lucky to be in that group. So we were talking about this. Thank you. We were talking about this exact thing. And we were talking about 
time management. And um, Sean was talking about calendar blocking. Like, are mm-hmm. you blocking your calendar to show how much time are you spending on revenue generating activities? And I think you take it even a step beyond that that says, do I block part of my day just like a CEO would where I don't have any calls and I just think about my business? Like, what am I going to do to win this $25 million account? Because I'm not going to think about that in the 20 minutes between two internal calls. Like, I'm not going to come up with that idea then. I'm going to come up with that idea after I research the account for like 15 hours and read every 10 K and do all those things. So it's like you change the way you spend your time when you have the ownership of a CEO. So yes, I am also very passionate about that idea. That's really cool that you got caught it because I never, I, I didn't until I had like a great, great sales leaders. I didn't at the beginning of my training, no way did I get taught that. No, no. So Sarah, as a, as a CEO, I love the know your numbers, right? Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about why it's so important for you to know your numbers? Yes. And actually, this is the scariest part of sales for me because I hate math. Um, widely known, <laughs> not secret. I hate it's, math. But it's just addition and subtraction. That's all. Yes, I know. <laughs> But, you know, as you can probably tell from my presentation, I'm more of a words and marketing kind of kind of gal. So anyways, knowing your numbers so important for several reasons. So if you don't know your quota and the pipeline gap you need to get there and your win rate and all these things, then you can't improve on any of those metrics because you don't know how you're doing. If you don't know mm-hmm. how many you know demos you need to close a deal then you don't know your win rate. Like, and in my experience, the more I knew about those metrics, the more I could say on on a call with sales leaders or with C-level people, the more I knew my numbers and said, well, I'm not there yet, but I need four deals that are worth $250,000 to fill my pipeline and be able to hit this number. When I could talk in that language, it was like all of a sudden the gates were open to all this support from executives because now... I'm speaking their language and I know how I'm going to hit my goal. And then if you don't know your numbers, you don't really have a plan to hit that goal. You know, you don't have a plan to overachieve and you don't have a plan to be in in president's club because you're not going to get there by saying, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to sell stuff. You know, it's like, what am I going to sell and for how much? Um, So it's not easy, but it's, it's, important. And I encounter a lot of salespeople who don't take ownership of those numbers and don't know them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I I have something I've done for years, a a little presentation of what I call calculating your lead deficit. And so at the start of every year, to your point about you're going to plan, how am I going to hit my number? Right. So I know what my number is, is especially if you have responsibility for developing your opportunities as well. Mm -hmm. Um, It was like, yeah, you calculate based on past performance, win rates, as to your point, number of inbound leads you get, you come up, you calculate a number of how many leads you need to develop, how many opportunities you need to develop in order to hit your number combined with the you know, inbound. And then, yeah, just break it down from there is the activities you need to do, you know, who you need to call and everything just sort of flows from that. But if you don't know your numbers, yeah, yeah you're just guessing every time you show up at work, right? Well, and it makes it really hard to set goals. Yes. 
it's hard to set goals. And I was, I was just going to call out like knowing your comp plan is the same game. It's like, you should know how you're going to get paid and for what and when, and what can Mm -hmm. boost your commission plan and like, what do accelerators look like? And it's unfortunate, but I don't think a lot of people get, again, training and coaching around this early in their career. Uh, I didn't. And so I went into a lot of jobs kind of blind, not really understanding my comp plan and not having anybody and getting, you know, being in startups with super complex compensation plans, you know, that are meant to max you out on labor. I mean, you get where this is going. So it's like, <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't get the hang of that until I had a couple burns of not getting what I thought I would get on a deal. And then it's like, all right, nobody's going to know my comp plan better than me. Um, so now, you know, I learned a lesson, but I think we could train reps earlier on the importance of numbers for sure. Well, how would, how would you do that? That's a great question. Cause yeah, I think, I think it's, yeah, part of an equation also of training newer sellers or as you onboard newer sellers, I was talking to someone a couple of weeks ago, it's like, yeah, we do work on the comp plan and then we take a step further and we say, huh, do they know how to, do they know how to open a bank account? Do they know how to, you know, open a Schwab account or something? And we just, you know, we take people through, if you, here's your comp plan, if you execute it well, you're also going to have some, some money. So you know what to do with the money even that comes from it. And I think this is all sort of integrated. Yeah. I think the best examples I've seen, um, at least from a comp plan and quota perspective, are when leadership would take a deal that, that was already sold as an example Mm-hmm. And they would show, Ooh. they would walk the reps through and say, this was the structure of the deal. This is how many years it was. This was the revenue amount. This was the ACV. Here's what the, what the, um, rep made on it. Mm-hmm. So seeing an example of that. And then from like, when I, I remember, um, when I was in an SDR role, we also had examples of here's like five or six different ways that you could get to the meeting target of 24 meetings Here's strategies from sellers who have been successful and having a seller share that. I mean, in some cases, I think that top sellers can be part of onboarding new sellers and saying, here's here's how I, I got this deal done. Here's how I increased my win rate. But there's not enough seeking out of that coaching Um you know, yeah. in a lot of organizations that I've worked in, not, not currently, fortunately, but I've worked in a lot of organizations where coaching and onboarding was not a key priority, like hitting the number was a key priority, but you know, you could argue that missing some of these marks, um, affects how you hit your numbers, you know, how your sellers are trained. Yeah. Well, there's still, still have this huge perception gap between managers and sellers about, <laughs> coaching, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah, one study with, you know, 80% of coaches or managers say, yeah, we provide coaching. And, and 80% of sellers said, yeah, I don't get any meaningful coaching. It was mm-hmm. the same yeah. study. It was like, hmm, big perception gap there. I do Thanks. think it's critical, the, the education and the onboarding. We, we had a sales kickoff recently and we took two hours to explain to the sales team what their stock options really mean and what mm-hmm. is strike price and what is the value of their stock today versus what it could look like in the future? And why Amazing. taking rounds, while they may be exciting, could also be very dilutive um, 
to the shareholders. And they, they really were excited to learn because it's not one of those things you learn in school. It's certainly not what a lot of companies teach you. And everybody's celebrating bigger and bigger rounds of funding. What they don't or what they didn't realize was with every round of funding, if you give prefs, for example, to the new investor, that means they get several times the multiple that they put in their money. So if you do a big round, but you give a 4X pref, guess what? The investor is going to be paid four times their money before the employees see even a single dollar. And you see this time and again, where the companies have great exits and the employees end up with nothing. And yet you see LinkedIn, everybody (laughs) celebrating big rounds. Yeah. I could, so, I could wallpaper a, a room with uh, worthless options based on that scenario. Yes. <laughs> well, and I, I think it's also um, it, the training at like, I love that transparency, Howard, like it's, that's amazing, but it's not common at all. And when I started in sales, no. I didn't have a sales background. I didn't come from money. I didn't know what stock options were about. I didn't know all the rules. I thought that was money. And then it's like, no, that's not money. And I'm working eight hours, 80 hours a week so that I can make, you know, these founders richer, but I'm not going to be the one benefiting from it. So, yeah, I love when there's transparency around that in organizations. I think that shows a really healthy sales culture and a healthy culture in general. But when there's transparency from leadership to sellers, that's big. And now it's a prior, it's a must for me. Like I'm, I'm not interested in a job where that doesn't happen now. So it has to happen. Right. And if, and if you treat your employees like investors, because that's what they are, they're investors in your company. They're the most valuable asset you have. And if you don't treat them as such one, they'll go elsewhere. And two, why are they going to invest the time, energy necessary to improve who they are and what they're doing and the results they deliver if they don't feel like they're being invested in? So it it really is a relationship that needs to go both ways. And I think in this competitive marketplace where people are jumping jobs right and left, unless you treat people and invest in people in a way that makes them feel valued, that makes them feel like they have a stake and they're cared about, it's not going to work. Correct. Agree. Totally. Yeah. Well, to your point, I mean, we see this all the time with, you know, stories about the great resignation or the great reassessment that some people are calling it. Um, yeah, I think there's been an, an increased awareness on the part of employees that they have more say, perhaps, in, in the type of environment that they want to go in and what they expect from that environment, mm-hmm. for sure. I mean, very different than when I got started. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Sarah, can you, sorry, Andy, I'm, I'm really curious. You have a section in your presentation about being a human. Can, yeah. can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so I think when we go through all the training that does happen as salespeople, where we learn about our product and we learn about what we can do for the buyer and all the stuff we can sell them and how much it costs and all these things, like sometimes we just forget to be a human and we just get on the phone and it's just like, I'm going to pitch this product and I'm going to book a meeting and we're going to do a demo and I'm going to make a sale. 
And it's like the people on the other end of the phone have families and babies and sick parents and difficult jobs and budget cuts and inflation and all types of other crap. And having the mindset when you approach someone that they might not be in the mood to hear your message is kind of a good stopgap for yourself. Like, and then the second piece of that is when you're reaching out to your buyer, are you coming to them not only with empathy, that's what I mean by being a human, but like, are you offering something interesting? Because we're all really busy and we don't have a lot of time and everyone's even more tired because we're home all the time now and our lives are all jumbled together. So are you actually reaching out with something interesting? I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I've followed Andy's podcast for a really long time. I refused to write Andy a note until I had an idea that was good and was like, this is a good fit for, for me to talk to Andy about. And it took me a year of following Andy to have that idea, but then I had it. Because reaching out to him before that is wasting his time. But I see a lot of sales activity that's, well, I've got to get my product in front of them and I got to handle every objection. And it's like, no, let's figure out what are the things that are causing the most pain and anguish in their everyday business life. And we don't figure that out by saying what keeps you up at night, which is like my number one pet peeve. I hate that question. Well, <laughs> no, I love that part in the presentation because that's me too. It's like, no, yeah, if you're asking what keeps you up at night, I, I would even go and include what are your pain points as one of those questions as well. Horrible. Because you should already have an idea of what that could be because you've spent so much time learning about this prospect and, you know, stalking them on LinkedIn and reading about their company and whatever, all the things that a good seller does. And by the time you get to, I'm going to pitch them or send them an email, you already have an opinion about their business. And the example I gave in the presentation to the sales school students was with Sephora, which is a brand I spend quite a mm-hmm. substantial amount of money with. So <laughs> I had a really great Howard, Howard does as, Howard does as well, by the way. Just yeah, yeah. I have yeah. a daughter and a wife, so it's so money you know, well you're spent. Probably, you're probably a beauty insider. Well, I was, and they were my prospect. So I had a lot of experience with their brand. So I started recording, basically, you know, writing down experiences I had in their store and on their website. And at the time I was selling website analytics, I was selling a analytics platform. So when I reached out to them, I talked about the top three things that made my experience as a beauty insider, really painful. Here's the three things. Are you interested in that? And sent it to an SVP or something. And she replied within 10 minutes because of course she's interested in that. That's her job to make sure that a, a, a primary customer doesn't have that experience. But reaching out and saying, hey, we have great analytics for your website that can track what people do. No, that's not personal at all. That's not human. I'm Sarah. I spend a lot of money with you. And here's why that experience sucks, but I still keep coming back. Is that interesting? Like, th- that's a whole different conversation. So be human is not just empathy, but also how can I... How can I put this experience with our product or my experience with their brand in the context and make it personal, either to me or to them? So let me ask a question. I think Howard and I have talked about this before is, is, so when we onboard 
sellers, these new cohorts of sellers coming into workforce. Shouldn't we be investing and in teaching them how to be human? <laughs> you know, we make this assumption that they know how, right? And I think it's yeah. a false assumption. It doesn't mean they're bad people at all. It's just, you know, uh, the communication skills of people entering the workforce today are dramatically different than they were, let's say, when Howard joined the workforce um, because, you, you know, call me spent, old again, Andy. Is that what you're no, doing? No, 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 no. Yeah. So, um, but you know, no one's spending time on the phone, right? Everybody's coming That's of true. an age with used to asynchronous messaging and, and connecting differently on social media. And it's just, it is different. All right. Then, you know, when you're connecting to someone in person, trying to build that, that relationship, that connection, that human connection, empathy, trust, credibility, why don't we invest more in training sellers on this before we get into the, the you know training people how to be a seller? Let's train them how to be a human. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a great idea. I'm almost thinking about like how would you do that? It almost would be like it's almost like emotional IQ training. Like you could use emotional IQ as part of it, but it's almost like how do you make a connection with someone that's sure. authentic? Well, yeah, well, it's it's really investigating what works in your relationships today. Mm-hmm. We all have relationships. We all know what makes relationships work and what doesn't, what's building trust, what helps us connect with those we love and care about. I think yeah. Andy does a really good job in his new book, Sell, Selling Without Selling Out, and I might be botching the title, but it's sell, really about sell without that. Selling out, yeah. <laughs> it's really about that human-centered approach, right? Like creating that best version of yourself. And we all are aware of what that best version of ourselves looks like. It's bringing that into our business relationships. Mm-hmm. I think, so I have some theories about this, um, so I think training on that, on, on creating authentic connections and being a human, yes. Without question, I think that's probably a great idea. And I didn't even think about kind of the differences between how much time people coming into the sales force right now spend on their phones versus face-to-face with human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, another big difference that I noticed in myself just versus the other salespeople that I worked with Um, I have a liberal arts degree in English literature and I have a master's in writing and communication. So not that there's like a sales degree. I mean, there's some, there's some sales schools out there I've heard about. (laughs) There are are sales degrees now. Yes. Well, there were, you know, at the time I had no idea that I was ever going to be in sales. And so I do think that studying communication for all of those years and how to write and how to present and how to pitch, mm-hmm. you know, I worked in a media relations organization where I was pitching newspapers on covering our stories, all of that experience. No, it wasn't sales experience, but it was learning how to get people to listen to me and believe what the heck I was talking about. So, you know, that liberal arts, there, there is data that says hiring liberal arts ma- majors as sellers, um, you know, they come at a, pro- at a problem in a more holistic way than somebody who only went to business school and they can only see the business side of that deal. Like I, I do approach things differently than some of my colleagues who have had a traditional business education for sure. And I love this because I actually think rather than taking the business school and creating sales degrees there, 
Go to liberal arts. I'm, I have a clinical psychology background. I study relationships. You study communications, right? Like start there and then add some sales or business courses because that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to deliver authentic people who are great communicators, who understand relationship building, who mm-hmm. understand the core aspects of how to connect and relate and drive and build value Take that and then apply some business and what comp means and what stock options mean and that sort of thing. I think that's where we could see some real advancements in education and priming these younger students to actually come up and be more capable and more trained for today's selling environment. Mm -hmm. It's probably also- They should all be history majors. (laughs) You what? Right? They should should all be history history majors. Just as I was, yes. That's really um, cool. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, but I think the liberal arts thing is not to display my bias too much here, but is is you still is critical thinking skills. Yeah, and I think yeah. that's one of the things that yeah you know, I brought into sales. I write about story in the new book about how after my first sales training class at big computer company, uh, two weeks into my job, go away for two weeks in Pasadena. People from all newbies from all over the country being trained. The recommendation after that course was that they should fire me because I was too I was too analytical. I wasn't salesy enough, and they thought I'd never make it in sales. So this is the other point I was going to make, Howard, to what you said about kind of combining those types of education. So Andy made like is making the point with his book, like de destructuring or, or destroying, I should say, that stigma of like to be a seller, you have to be a sellout. You have to sell your soul. I mean, early in my career, I remember joking to people, well, I left marketing and PR and grant writing and all that stuff because I sold my soul to the devil and now I'm in sales. And it's like, wait a second. <laughs> no. Welcome to hell. <laughs> you can still you can still be a human. I remember saying to one of my early mentors, like, well, now I'm with all because at the time I was I was the only woman on the first team I was on. And I was really mm. young. I was, you know, 24, 25. And here I am selling to men that are, you know, three, two times You're my age. You're still really whatever. young. Come on. I'm still young. So I remember thinking I had to become a shark. I had to become, you know, conniving and ruthless and all these other adjectives. And then somebody said to me, like, no, how about if you just be you? Like, that's probably the best mm-hmm. person. That's probably the best mm-hmm. person to be when you're selling. Um, and I think once I, you know, got over the fear of, okay, I, I worked with enough clients who valued the experience of me, then I started to believe maybe I don't have to, to change myself, but there's so many, there's so much stigma still around selling that, you know, you have to fit this certain mold of what a salesperson is. Um, and I have to call out because Andy was a history major that my undergrad is from Gettysburg college. Oh, nice. There you go. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 just sort of in the air, right? This idea yes. that you have to behave a certain way, and but the thing is, it's continuing to be reinforced by companies. You know, you look at job postings, and you still see job postings for hunter. Okay, well, all right. Have you ever asked one of your buyers, "Do you need the seller to be a hunter?" I mean, just just asking, right? Do you need do you need that? Do you need this person to be an extrovert? I mean. We ever look at what we're asking sellers to be and, and bounce it off a customer and said, a buyer, would this be useful for you? Do we hire people with these characteristics? Are they going to help you make a decision? 
Never. Yeah. I don't think they would like the word hunter. You're right. Yeah. Also. Yeah. And yet, and yet they probably all have their own job listings for hunters as well. So (laughs) nobody wants to be sold that way, but they all have the same job listing looking for a hunter. Right. But they think that's what it requires. And it's so you're, what you're doing when you have those, those, uh, you know, attributes that you're advertising recruiting for is first of all, you're dissuading big chunks of the potential population or pool of sellers from entering into the workforce because they don't identify with that. Mm-hmm. I think it's, and you made a good point about introverts versus extroverts too. I think about this a lot. Um, cause I'm, I'm obviously, I think it's obvious I'm an extrovert. Uh, but I know great salespeople who are introverts and because they're able to shut up and not talk, you know, for 15 minutes at a time, they can listen to stuff. And they probably hear more than I hear as an extrovert. Um, And I think you can maintain, it's funny that you bring out the word hunter because that's what I've always, I've always been in that bucket. Um, And I see myself that way, but I don't approach clients that way. So I guess it's almost like you have to mentally separate. Yes, I'm the CEO of my territory. Yes, I'm responsible for finding new logos, but I don't take that mentality of I'm looking for a, my next hunt and kill, you know, onto my, <laughs> onto my sales call. I mean, it's almost like a mentality that's reserved for me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, and we need a new vocabulary around this, right? Because Probably. <laughs> I, has, does anybody ever research the way people hunt these days? I mean, the most popular form of hunting in the U S is deer hunting. Oh, yeah. So how do the people deer hunt? You you establish a spot, you know, where you know your permit allows you to hunt, but usually in a wooded area. You build a stand, you go out and leave, you know, scent and lure around the stand, and you attract the deer to you. You don't go stalk the deer, the deer come to you. So the irony is wow. hunting is really about inbound these days, not outbound. I learned something new. This is I had no idea that's how you get a deer. The other really cool thing about what Andy said is not just that it's inbound, but if you were such a great salesperson, you'd be creating kind of like the aura or putting out the thought leadership or whatever adding value thing you want to insert that your clients would be like, oh, yeah. You'd attract them. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's like, it's like duck, duck hunting with a call. You sit in a blind and you sound your duck calls and you hope the ducks fly overhead. Hunting, you know, the most popular forms of hunting. <laughs> are inbound. Just FYI. I just want people to put that out there. That's for people. Cool. I had no idea you were such an avid hunter, Andy. Well, I, I grew up no in Wisconsin. Idea. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's the national, it's the state sport in Wisconsin. Got it. So, so, so Sarah, question for you. We're talking about the, the attributes that sales reps don't necessarily need and probably shouldn't have. What are more of those qualities of great sellers? I know that you've focused yeah. on that and, and certainly, you know, educate us. Yeah. I think the other big ones that we didn't touch on yet. Um, I know one of my favorites is comfort talking about money. Um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. along those same lines, just generally not being, I don't want to say not being afraid, but not letting fear dictate your decisions and actions as a seller. So everybody's afraid. Sometimes we all have things we're afraid of. Um, cold calling people is scary, but you still have to do it. 
asking people for money. For some people, it's scary. For me, it's really fun. I like doing it. Um, <laughs> but for some people, it's really scary. But you still have to do sure. it. Um, so I think a lot of everyday activity for great sellers, and I think probably for all sellers, is doing things that would make most people a little bit uncomfortable. And it doesn't have to mean being salesy, but it's asking questions that don't feel like you should be asking them. Like, it's almost like you're constantly testing the boundaries with your buyer of, okay, well, could you share this? Now that we're on the phone, could you tell me a little bit more about your buying process? You know, are you are you asking for a termination for convenience because of X, Y, Z or because you just want to ask for one? I mean, all these types of questions that challenge your buyer without being pushy. And it goes along the lines of like, if you're the Sherpa of the buying experience and your buyer is like, I think I'm going to take that path up Everest over there. And you're like, I don't think that's a good idea. And here's why. Without saying... I don't think that's a good idea because it doesn't benefit me. I don't think that's a good idea because it's not going to start our partnership on the right foot. And here's why. So being able to have those uncomfortable conversations, which in sales often involve um, money. So there's others, but I'll stop at that one in case you want to ask me anything about it. <laughs> well, but I, I, you bring up a great point. I think that, that I like to phrase it as, you know, sales, yes, people talk about sales being a competitive, uh, you know, profession. Yeah. But the most competition is with yourself because every day you have to go out and do things that make you feel uneasy in one dimension or another. And so you're sort of always competing with yourself to make sure you go do these things. And yeah, it's uncomfortable conversations, could be about money, it could be cold calling, whatever. But yeah, I think you need to have that perspective as it, you know. You're competing with yourself. Yeah, and and I think along with competing with yourself, I wish I'd known this earlier when I started in sales, but your time is as valuable as the buyer's, mm-hmm. which again goes along the lines of being human. Like just because you're a salesperson, maybe we should change that term too. Just because you're a salesperson doesn't mean that you are a slave to your buyer and you do everything they say forever and you're on the phone at all hours because you're available because you have to close the deal. Of course, we have to prioritize revenue generating activities as sellers, but there are some buyers who will take advantage of the seller. Um, and, (laughs) And so... You have to be willing to stand your ground and say, um, I gave an example in the deck where I was, I flew my team, a team in and some of our executives for a meeting near the beginning of my career. It was with the CIO of a really big retail company. And, uh, he, his admin emailed us an hour before the meeting and said, he's not coming. And I just responded and said, with all due respect, I've flown my whole team here. We've been doing a pilot for three months for free. Um, he needs to review the contract. It has to be signed by Friday, and I'm not leaving town until I meet with him. So if he can't make this meeting, let's figure out what meeting he's going to be at because I'm not leaving until then. And she replied and said he'll be at the meeting, and he signed he signed the deal. So that's if I had, awesome. awesome. It, it was, but it was scary, Howard. I mean, that's my point. Like, did I enjoy doing of that? No. 
but it had to be done. And it, and that was the first, I think for me, that was the first realization of like, wait a second, I've done enough work to earn the right to ask for him to show up to this meeting. Mm-hmm. 100%. And what you're describing, Sarah, is a relationship, a healthy yes. relationship. And we continue to go back to what you're describing is basically a basic boundary. In any relationship, if somebody did yeah. that to you, you would speak your mind and tell them you're disappointed. And if you didn't do that, that wouldn't be a healthy relationship. We have to think about the sales process Mm -hmm. as relationships. You are developing human relationships and there are unhealthy ones and there are healthy ones. And the healthy ones have boundaries like you just exhibited. (laughs) Love it. Love it. All right. Well, you know, we're sort of running out of time here. Uh, Unfortunately, Sarah, we'll have to have you back and do this again. This has been so much fun. Same. Love to. All right. Well, we'll make sure we happen, make it happen. So um, if people want to connect with you, Sarah, best way to do that? Oh, please do connect with me. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. You can just find me, Sarah Levinson, on LinkedIn. Um, super passionate about women in sales. So I write a lot of content on that. Um, and yeah, happy to, to have folks reach out, say hi, happy to connect. Great. All right, Sarah, thank you. Thanks so much to you and Howard for having me and being so passionate about our beloved craft uh, and talking about it. I had such a blast with you guys. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Sarah. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of this show. And I want to thank my guest, Sarah Levinson, for sharing her insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we thank you for your help with that. And I thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Mm-hmm.